I'm so happy Cause today found my friends You're in my head I'm so ugly That's okay Cause so are you Look on me as Sunday morning It's every day for all I care Hello and welcome to Unfrozen. I'm Dan Safarik. I'm Greg Lindsay, and you're here for episode 32. Our guest today is Marina Otero, uh, who is an architect, uh, and particularly we have her on because she is the winner of the 2022 Wheelwright Prize, which is a $100,000 two-year grant awarded by the Harvard University Graduate School of Design, the GSD, to explore emerging issues in architecture. And Marina, we invited her on because of the incredibly intriguing title of her project, Future Storage, Architectures to Host the Metaverse. Now, those of you who've been listening for a while know that Dan and I have an occasional fascination in the metaverse and how it'll manifest itself. Um, but Marina is particularly focused on, I guess, sort of the intersection of the hardware and the architecture. And so we are very pleased to have her on today to explore what the future architecture of the metaverse will look like. So thank you for joining us, Marina. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for having me. So yeah, I'm very excited to be here with you. Well, it's a pleasure. I wish we could do this two, two in a room here. You and I are in Montreal, all Dan's in Chicago today. So it's always good to spatially ground ourselves when getting into the, the metaverse here. But I, I guess as the first question is, um, yeah, how are you defining the metaverse in this case? And obviously, there's been a lot of architectural work and research done around the architectures of computing. I'm thinking of Ben Bratton's The Stack is one of my favorites as well. But, but your project is not just research, but to actually generate future prototypes of what the architecture of the metaverse should be. So would love it if you could kick off by explaining your sort of vision of this overarching space. Well, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say that I'm more interested in how the metaverse gets built in the sense that we all speculate about the possibilities of that space. So at the same time, I'm more interested in what is needed to actually create it. And it's not only the technology, but it's also the entire infrastructure that supports it. And that sometimes, many times, uh, we forget about the huge infrastructure and resources uh, and land that uh, is needed to create actually the metaverse. <laughs> so I'm more in that side and trying to understand what are the implications and actually how to be able to deliver the dreams of the metaverse uh, without putting at risk the actual share the space that we all have that is also this material uh, physical uh, world. Interesting. Well, where where do you, where are you starting in your project? Or I'm I'm sure your project's already underway and your studies are underway. But where 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 would you start, or how would you sort of describe the layers of the metaverse? Because you know, in, in Bratton's book, you know, the stack, he you know, he looks at computation from rocks up to planetary scale and. Others like Ingrid Burrington have written a lot about, you know, computation is, yeah, it's ultimately electricity flowing through rocks. Like there's all sorts of interesting material science, how com computation is embodied. Uh, Andrew Blum wrote his book over a decade ago, I think, called Tubes, looking at sort of like, you know, the infrastructure, the, the internet really is a series of tubes. Like all this sort of gets obscured, obviously, beneath the dreams of, you know, the disembodied cloud and metaverse. But uh, yeah, I'm curious, like, where, where do you find points of intervention for the beginning of your studies? And, and yeah, how are you approaching it? So I start uh, with the typology of the data center, uh, but it's just like, a, let's say, a, a kind of a trigger of a larger investigation. So as an architect, I find interesting that such an important uh, 
architecture space or infrastructure that is fundamental for the functioning of uh, our current society is uh, so uninspiring in certain ways as an architectural topology and hasn't been explored as much as this it should be. So for me, it's just a, a space where I start looking at different components. But over the last years, that uh, allowed me to think through different uh, aspects of the digital infrastructure. So one of them is, as you said, the cables, the cable landing points, um, also where they are located, why they are located there, what is what are the implications for uh, real estate and also industry to have those entry points, also questions connected to automation. And so what are the uh, industries that have been uh, automated? What are the implications for labor force, but also for uh, forms of urbanization? For instance, in the Netherlands, where I'm generally based, um, there's a growing industry that is connected to automation, both in uh, greenhouses, uh, but also in the port. So that has very big implications and obviously is necessarily connected to the infrastructures connected of the internet. Um, I'm also working on the other side of the spectrum in the, like the materials that are allowed for, for instance, batteries um, that run the data centers and many of these other uh, spaces, which is lithium. So I've been working on lithium extraction in uh, in Chile and also now more recently in Portugal and in, and in Spain. So as you can see, there are different components, but for me, in a way, they coalesce or they converge uh, in this space of the data center that I use as a, an opportunity to rethink the entire network um, as an entry point. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's, that's exactly why I'm looking into different forms of designing data, data centers from different perspectives. In some cases, it's more connected to availability of lands and how to make them less uh, land consume, consuming, in other cases to energy um, consumption or CO2 emissions, but in other cases are more connected to socio-political questions, for instance, uh, data governance and, and other questions or similar questions. So each example that I've selected for the traveling on the ground um, allows to think about the digital infrastructure in a different way, uh, opens up different windows in what the metaverse or the future of the metaverse could be in relation not only to you know technology, but ecology and social uh, justice. Well, we love a good travelogue here at Unfrozen. So if you're at liberty to say, what sites have you chosen and for what reasons? Um, so one of the places I, I decided that I should go is Singapore, because Singapore had a ban on data centers for a couple of years, um, because obviously they um, you know, needed to find models that will uh, be less land uh, consuming and also energy consuming, given that it's a, a highland and some resources are limited. So there have been a lot of experimentation and new topologies um, in the sense of uh, seaborne data centers, underwater data centers, and different uh, you know, new technologies that will allow to have more renewable energy. So I'm very excited to go there and to see what has happened in the last two years and you know, what are the breakthroughs uh, that the industry has developed. 
uh, for instance, these huge um, solar farms, floating solar farms that are also allowing to, you know, support uh, spaces like data centers, etc. So that's that's one of them. In the other side is, uh, you know, more connected to, as, just, as I said, social um, questions and political questions, in this case, data governance. And I'm traveling to Darwin in Australia because there is uh, there they, they created the first indigenous-led data center. Um, and I think that's a very important question uh, that has to be addressed when we think about data and data infrastructures is who has access to it, who owns the, the data, and, and what type of governance is organized around the access to, to data and manipulation of data. So in the case of indigenous communities, uh, this is a very important question about uh, data governance in general. And the fact that they are creating their own infrastructure is something that I would like to discuss. And it's not the only example, actually. There are more and more uh, data centers in Australia, for instance, that are indigenous-led. Um, so yeah, these are some very different examples in a way, but other places are in Nigeria that I'm also interested in connecting with the crypto communities, especially woman-led uh, crypto tech uh, communities and how they are in many ways um, positioning themselves against uh, the corporations who are bringing new data infrastructures, but in a way taking some of the agency that communities, local communities have. So what are their strategies to engage in uh, these developments, but also set their own uh, infrastructures? And the other places are Chile, in connection to also lithium extraction and the development of the new Humble cable, which is a cable that will connect um, your Chile with uh, New Zealand and Australia, so creating a new data hub and to see what developments developments it will bring. Uh, also, we'll go to the Nordic countries, Iceland and Sweden <clears throat> to think about also questions connected to energy, but also uh, the reuse of uh, existing infrastructures and transforming them in, into data centers. And I think I'm, oh yeah, and of course, and the US, I will go to California um, to talk with, uh, you, you know, people that are developing to my, I mean, I think the incredible uh, developments in terms of new storage mediums. So that, that can have a really transformative um, effect on how we conceive data centers, uh, because um, there are different companies working on DNA data storage and other mediums equally exciting and that I would like to explore more to see what um, new imaginations they open for the design of data centers. Thank you. I'm so jealous of you. Uh, that just sounds like an incredible journey um, in every in every dimension. Um, so I'm, you know, I think one of the things that you've really brought to the forefront here is that, you know, we think of we, even you know just the terminology that we use to describe the way that the internet and the and the and data work is is you know the cloud. It's all very disassociative. It sounds like it's very lightweight, but actually. What you've hit upon here is that there's a lot of hard infrastructure involved, and it's particularly hard when you, you know, literally come up to the wall of a data center and it's just a blank. And a lot of them are extremely energy consumptive, as you've pointed out. Um, have you thought 
or maybe this is the question to ask at the end of the journey, once you've reviewed all of these, um, have you thought about any sort of alternative models of uh, what a data center can be uh, in the communities that they occupy? Can they, can they be a source of district heat or district cooling, for example, uh, or can they be inhabited? Um, I was just wondering if you have any pre preliminary thoughts about how data centers and the hard infrastructure of the internet could be used in a, in a physical yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, so different, of course, companies connected to data centers, but also architectural firms are looking into these possibilities. I have to say that the most exciting models I have the I have seen them in architectural reviews in in the schools. Students are you know very advanced in in thinking uh, about new models, but some of those, as you said, are connected to the in a way, in forming which uh, the data center could be entangled or connected to the fabric of the city, instead of seeing them as something completely isolated, like these black boxes that are like you know in the periphery of cities, something that is more connected to the grid uh, in a larger sense, like providing as just maybe other resources like uh, heating. So the excess of heat of data centers can be used for other. Um, activities, uh, for instance, housing, and those are models that have been put in practice also in some uh, uh, Nordic countries. Um, but it's not the only possibility. As you said, it could be programmatic. Uh, there are a lot of different hybridizations. Um, for instance, one of the places I want to visit in Sweden is a data center, but it's also a club and, uh, you know, a cafe. So it's kind of has more civic and social activities uh, and not only like the storing of data and uh, i'm interested also in those hybridization and those like different programmatic uh, changes in how to conceive the data center but perhaps some of the most radical imaginations i've seen around the future of data centers are uh, you know, connected to what I said before, that is different storage mediums. And in particular, the DNA uh, as a storage medium has opened a lot of different possibilities to imagining uh, what a data center could be. And it's still in development, but uh, it's quite promising. Um, so many companies are actually, there is this uh, DNA alliance, uh, like a storage alliance, that they are doing a lot of work in developing uh, this methodology to, to store data, this technology, and it's been used, for instance, as pilot projects in different libraries. Obviously, it's not a medium that will allow you to deliver the metaverse so easily because it's not for uh, easy to retrieve data like immediately, so it's more for long-term storage. So it's a storage that can have is very dense as a medium and allows to have a lot of data kept for a long time, um, potentially, you know, hundreds of years or more. But there is a, a group of artists and designers who have been also, and, and scientists as well, thinking about what if we use uh, the DNA of plants um, instead of artificial DNA. And obviously that raises certain ethical questions, but also a lot of possibilities. So what I will tell you is that I'm excited about the idea of a forest being a data center or a community garden being a data center. 
so, so a type of data center that is not only not consuming so much energy, but actually generating oxygen and is totally uh, in synchrony and continuity with the environment. And uh, so that's a kind of image that in a way is uh, triggering my imagination a lot. And there are many um, details to be thought through, but I've been uh, working also with a group of designers that have a company called Grow Your Own Cloud that have been exploring those options and having different conversations also with uh, the industry about the possibility of the developing some prototypes around this idea of this uh, data center garden or forest. Yeah, so those are some of the thinkings that <laughs> I'm, I'm considering now. That's fascinating. What what are your conversations with industry like in that regard, Marita? Because I mean, one of one of our ongoing obsessions on here is um, sort of you know the the intersection of architecture with all these other fields and industries. And of course, architecture as a profession, you know, believes it should have it has the agency to design the world. But so often, so much of the world gets made elsewhere. I always love the Keller Easterling quote. You know, uh, architecture is the stone in the water, and the world is making the water. Um, you know, who designs data centers now and, and how do you get, how do you get in front of those people to, to introduce these alternate ideas? Because I know, for example, you know, Facebook, I think a few years back introduced their own open source designs for data centers. What was then the state of the art? Because they didn't want to manufacture their own hardware. They wanted, they wanted to outsource that to the people. So it seems like there's some opportunities here, but you know, who, who are the players and who does it now? And, and, you know, how do you, how do you as an architect intervene into these, giant industrial production facilities that mass produce these data centers. I'm, I'm curious, like as a, as a process standpoint, where do you intervene? Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's the question. And I hope that also the support of Harvard and the prize will open a lot of doors, but has been changing in the last years. I remember maybe when I started working a bit more on data centers in 2016, um, I was discussing with, for instance, the uh, managing director of the Dutch Data Center Association, and we invited him to have in conversation with different designers and architects about you know, data center design. And we were asking him if he thinks that architects have a role or an important role in thinking about the future of these infrastructures. And he said, well, yes, in designing the facade. And that has been the case for many years. That wow, the facade—that's <laughs> your role. That's incredible. So it was like the idea for many people in the industry. What we can add as architects was just designing a beautiful facade that will make these black boxes not to be, you know, it will be better integrated in the way in the urban environment. So not to raise. Uh, discontent in a way because of their looking as, as very closed uh, down infrastructures. So, and that was the trend in the last years, many architects just were basically involved in creating fancy uh, facades. But the conversation has evolved. And if uh, in the recent conversations I had with the industry, especially after a lot of backlash uh, on data centers, bans on the construction of new data centers because they are consuming more energy than entire villages and uh, cities, then the industry is looking for more people to, to think together about how to address this question. You can say that in some ways it's a bit like opportunism, like, okay, we need to have, you know, 
uh, better publicity, <laughs> in the sense to say it bluntly, on, on how to address this question. So it's good for us to be partnering with other people and being considering options. But in other cases, it's genuine interest in really addressing, okay, this is what we have now. Uh, we have to make a plan on how to address these questions for a short term, medium term, and long term. And the conversations that I had more recently, everyone is really open, even to the, <laughs> to the prototype and the idea of the data garden. So they are really open-minded towards uh, different developments because they know that otherwise the industry is not going to be able to, to have, uh, you know, to continue growing or to expanding in different ways because there is so much backlash from uh, citizens, but also governments. Um, so there's something has to be changed. So now ideas and ideas from architecture are welcome and they are recognizing like players in the industry that architecture can offer a more systemic approach in the sense of, not thinking only about how to organize the servers, so you know how things are connected to each other, like in, in a more um, you know technical way that perhaps not every architect has that knowledge. I don't, for instance, but in a way thinking about the data center as a piece in a larger puzzle, in a larger infrastructure, and how these different components uh, could be you know reorganized in order to make these spaces part of the city, a part of the future of the city in a way that they are like, you know, more sustainable. Um, and even like supporting a, a more desirable, desirable future. So I think that that is where we can offer uh, ideas and where we can, we can be helpful in thinking through, from what you said at the beginning, from different scales, from the tiny scale of, you know, the material, like uh, to the larger scale of, how different things come together, even on a planetary scale. And that's a bit ambitious, <laughs> but in a way, I think that's, that's the type of approach that architects could have to the question. I mean, the stuff that you've been talking about, these, uh, these data forests and everything is just mind bending. I mean, I'm j I just love hearing about that. And, you know, uh, it, it's a relief to hear that architects are getting involved in this conversation in a way that isn't just facade dressing or window dressing. Um, What's interesting to me is that, you know, the conversations that architects seem to have had to this point about the metaverse have been designing spaces for the digital realm itself, as opposed to designing physical buildings, which is what they're supposed to be good at. And the things that they have designed for the metaverse have been roundly criticized, um, pretty awful, actually. Uh, in firms that you would think would be very good at it, like Bjarke Ingels Group and Zaha Hadid, architects, you know, who have championed parametricism and digital design for all this time are churning out just stuff that doesn't even look appropriate for a video game, let alone real life. Um, why do you think that is? Why do you think architecture has not launched itself uh, properly into this imaginary? I think it's, it's coming. Um, no, I know what you mean. I was laughing. <laughs> I had my mic uh, mute, but you're totally right. But I've been... Well, while teaching all these years, I was teaching with Ippolito Pestellini, who was a partner of OMA for a long time and now has his own uh, agency. And also Camille Dalkir uh, in the RCA. 
And we were teaching a course on data centers, a study on data centers for three years. Then I moved on to uh, another university, to the Design Academy. But we keep in touch, we collaborate a lot, and they have continued the studio more focused also on digital infrastructures, but just in designing those spaces that you are referring to. And um, they have been partnering a lot with the gaming industry. And I'm, I'm quite impressed of how or what the students are actually designing. So I think if they are given the opportunity, there will be generations of architects that will be working yeah, in those spaces in a completely different way. Um, I like more established firms are doing now. Now, I don't know what will be their... If these people who are so talented will end up working more in, uh, you know, gaming industry itself, or they will join the ranks of architectural offices and will bring that knowledge into the architectural offices. It depends. But I think there is a big, um, yeah, a big industry that is developing now, and more and more architects are interested in developing those spaces. And as you said, sometimes are very uh, boring, <laughs> um, banal, right? Like, it's like, okay, if we have the possibility to imagine that space, how it could be, why we are still stuck in the Cartesian space, while we are still designing things according to the rules that apply in the, you know, in our conventional surroundings, while we are not thinking through other forms of aesthetics or time. So with the, with the students at the RCA, we were considering all these parameters, like, Okay, think about this space, but don't think in a normal time. Think about other ways of conceiving time and space that could be interesting. So I think that's that's coming, definitely, and and it could be very exciting. And I agree with you. The thing is that for me, I cannot think about designing those spaces of the metaverse, these very exciting digital spaces, without thinking about what are the implications of those spaces for to exist and. So I'm always going back and forth between the two um, or the various uh, different uh, spaces uh, that we are talking about, because otherwise, yeah, we are not really ethically involved in, in what is our work. And in the same time that when we de design a building, we are thinking about questions of labor or, or where the materials come from on who is the building serving, uh, what is adding to the community, what is the environmental performance of the building. I think the same questions apply to any other space and other, other architecture. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what I'm hopeful is that, you know, we don't, we don't just lose a bunch of uh, aspiring architects to the video game industry, which, you know, probably can offer more competitive pay and uh, more, uh, more suitable lifestyle for those who are, you know, willing to put in the time. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to actually uh, design interesting and new physical spaces. I wanted to um, ask a little bit about the, the end work product from this, this whole enterprise. It, it's defined as or described as the first open source manual for global data center architecture design containing examples of ecological circular and egalitarian data storage models. What what do you envision the, the end product sort of looking like? So what I notice is that the same that we have books or manuals for designing um, other architectures, for instance, comes to mind the Neufer that has been used for generations and generations of architects. I notice that there is 
the need to have something similar that can inform in a very basic way some conversations about data infrastructures and in particular about data centers. And I notice that because generally I'm involved in also, well, conversations with architects um, and also in the schools of architecture. And everyone is uh, trying to address the same question without and having to start over and over again uh, having an entry point in this world. And for me, it was important to say, okay, this is an important conversation. How can I add uh, in certain ways, not only to trying to be in conversation and collaborate with the industry, but also making sure that the new generations of architects are also aware and participate in this type of work and transformation. So that's how I envision it in a way that the type of um, designs and knowledge and, uh, you know, intelligences that I will find uh, as I travel to inform this manual or this publication where it will be, as I imagine it, uh, in some cases will be more details, in some others will be more like a systemic approach on how things are connected or in some ways will be more programmatic or in connection to, as I said, like socio-ecological uh, questions, so political questions, geopolitical questions. So that having an overview of certain developments that are important and create a base from which more innovation could happen. Because I also don't consider this is my topic, you know, only. There are many people working on this and I just want to contribute to that conversation and help others engage in that conversation. So hopefully that will be a helpful, um, you know, resource for people who is interested. And, and instead of starting over and over, uh, having that base from which to design. And I'm referring to students, uh, because I'm connected to education and I think it's important to be, you know, inspiring new generations. But obviously, I hope it will be also uh, a guide that will be used by offices and everyone who might be interested and something that could be evolving. Um, yeah, in the case of the Neufert, where so many editions and, you know, always trying to incorporate new transformations. And I, I imagine this as well like that, uh, open and to everyone, accessible, and that can bring this uh, knowledge to as many people as possible. So that's one aspect of, uh, of the work. And then the idea is also to, um, to produce some prototypes, to actually test some of the ideas that I encounter as I visit different spaces and be in touch with people to to test some of these, uh, of these um, technologies. For instance, the, we are discussing now ways in which we can do a small prototype of this data garden um, in Eindhoven in the Netherlands. And uh, I hope that this will be one of them. Like there will be different moments to test uh, different configurations, for instance, more micro data centers or distributed data centers across the city. And, different, I think, uh, innovations that could really change or so be a game changer in, in the way in which we conceive these spaces. I mean, the idea that, you know, this extremely extractive process of retrieving lithium from the earth and mineralizing all these surfaces and consuming all this energy could be turned into something that was actually uh, environmentally productive is, is extremely enticing. And I, I think if if the architecture profession or the architecture education uh, system could produce one thing of value with respect to the, to the metaverse, you'd think it would be that. Um, and I'm just, uh, 
just really pleased to hear that you're you're taking this tack. It, it kind of reminds me, um, even though this was just a uh, this was just a, a sort of a metaphorical or um, evocative um, display, but I assume you might have seen the Irish Pavilion at the 2021 Venice Biennale, which is called Entanglement. Um, kind of tried to address issues like this. Um, the idea being that the, the first telephonic uh, cable anchorage was was either in Northern Ireland or Ireland proper. Um, and uh, they built on this idea with a, a pavilion entry that was like, it was basically, it was full of plants, as I recall, and it, it created a lot of uh, ominous noises. Um, and they referred to it as a bonfire, which I didn't quite get when I was there, but just, you know, wondering how your proposition, you know, takes us in a little bit more productive way than, than this sort of meditation on dysphoria. Um, but I did think it was interested that the interesting that, you know, uh, the art, the art and architecture community has tried to address this before, but this is the first time I've heard anyone try to address it comprehensively. Yeah, I think the Irish Pavilion was a really good example. And yeah, I will be in conversation with them, I think, next next week or in two weeks. Uh, during the um, Irish Architectural Festival. Uh, yeah, they have done such a good work. And there are many people who have done. That's what I'm trying to explain, that I'm only one person in all this community trying to um, give more visibility to those questions and, and bring new imaginations about what could be the future of those infrastructures. And I agree. I think sometimes you need images to also creates new new ways of looking at the same question. And, and the image of the bonfire or the image of the data garden are, you know, sometimes not endpoints, but are what allow us to think about different ways of conceiving architecture in general, and also about conceiving data infrastructure. So I'm excited about those images. And obviously I want to make them work, but in a way, it's also fine if they don't fully work because I'm sure that they will trigger other projects or the ideas or the imaginations that will be working at some point. And the question of the data garden for me is just like, wow, it turns around many of the conceptions that we have about architecture. So I say, but okay, with if we allow... I mean, there are different things that get me excited. <laughs> One is... Um, yeah, it completely changes the idea that we can have about a museum or a library, obviously at a data center as well. So as a place of repository of information or data that generally are, you know, organized in a very Cartesian way and suddenly is conceived completely different as a, you know, ecosystem, as a forest, then those spaces that are so consuming so much energy then suddenly they not only consume, as you said, but actually generate uh, oxygen and they are in symphony, they are sustainable, they are growing. But there is also something else that <laughs> triggers my imagination that in the case of artificial DNA storage, um, they, uh, it's quite stable as a medium, obviously. But in the case of the plant DNA storage is not so stable as a medium. If you do it with seeds, uh, and, and then you can imagine having a, you know, a, a seed bank, as many of the seed banks that are around the world, but then thinking of that, that's uh, data storage. So each seeds have like thousands of millions of 
data containing them. But at the same time, if those plants germinate, that they are, you know, you not have the information only in seeds, but they do have it in plants. As they grow and change and sometimes alter their DNA, the information that they contain will not stay unchanged. It will also change. And that's obviously something that is a bit of a problem if you want to make it a commercial enterprise based on efficiency. But it's also a beautiful entanglement of human and plant uh, intelligence. And that's something I've been discussing with many people working on plant intelligence and plant ethics. And for me, it's very exciting that suddenly these infrastructures hold the information that we create as humans, but it's also altered and done in collaboration with plants. And I know that I'm getting like too far <laughs> in the future, but you see that I'm interested in what type of imaginations or ideas that brings when we start thinking about architecture otherwise, or these infrastructures in a different way, and how we prioritize the human, how we can include others, in those plans and to think of a, a completely different way of being in the world. Uh, so it's very ambitious, I know. I will start with something small for now. <laughs> well, we're, we're nearly out of time, Marina, but I, I want to close, given given that incredibly ambitious vision and what you mentioned earlier about various designers that, you, that you're already in contact with and working with, um, you know, I, I'm, so I guess a two-part final question. One, how do you imagine the, the future practice of architecture in, in this sort of vision, right? In the sense of this is a massive multidisciplinary project that calls upon all sorts of uh, aspects of nature and whatnot. So I'm curious, like, how would you imagine if you were running a practice dedicated to these issues? Like, what, how, how would you organize it? And what would those disciplines be? And how would you hire? And how would you find collaborators? And then second as part of that, please please use uh, our final moments here to, to put out an open call for the kind of collaborators you're seeking for this project, because that's why we're very excited to have you on here at the beginning of the process when hopefully you know uh, we can play a little bit of serendipity for you and, and uh, hopefully have this message get to the right ears. Yeah, that's great. So <laughs> I'm definitely looking forward to, to collaborate um, because this is obviously not something one person can do alone. And I'm, all my projects about are about also collaborative and collaborative in essence. But yeah, so I think as an architect, I, I can I imagine that we have certain knowledge that allow us to think, as I said, the problem or the question from different perspectives and different scales. Um, and that's what we can uh, offer to think about different models or prototypes. Let's say that ones like the data garden or forms of decentralized data storage, um, you know, think about the combination of data storage and the domestic life instead of like more public or, or independent infrastructures. So there are many different um, ways in which we can use our knowledge and uh, skills to think how the management uh, of data, like production, consumption, and circulation of, of data can be most uh, or better integrated in the fabric of, of the space, in the city of, of the space in general. So that's sort of certain things that we can add, but in order to make them possible, not everyone has the expertise. Obviously there are architects working in architectural, in data center firms, and they have very technical knowledge as well. But in general, I think it's totally necessary to work with scientists uh, currently developing, you know, these uh, different story mediums, where it is DNA, but it's also fluorescent uh, dye and many others. Um, 
so people working in that field of science that can also collaborate and, and think about different, you know, challenging those spaces, those, those technologies. And obviously people more connected to the technical side about software and hardware and how things work. So I'm not going to say that we are not the Leonardo da Vinci, that we have all the knowledge. I think indeed, as you say, we need multidisciplinary teams and also people connected to ethics um, because many of the developments that we are thinking about will have implications uh, for, in general, for, for everyone. Uh, so I think that's, that's the team that I, I'm imagining, like philosophers and uh, people connected to more to ethics, um, people working as in the part of scientific de developments, people working in the field of um, data storage per se, like the have technical skills, and uh, obviously uh, people working in the fields of energy, for instance, like uh, renewables, and um, and they have much more knowledge about the, also the different uh, developments that are happening in terms of like uh, energy. Um, so. That will be my ideal team. And then for the other side, like obviously the a bunch of architects and artists are proposing ideas that sounds a bit weird, but potentially can, can, change, can change the world. So Marina, thank you so much for that optimistic vision. It's probably the least dystopian and most optimistic vision uh, I've heard regarding the metaverse and the future of the planet um, since we started this podcast. So. Uh, for that alone, I thank you. My only regret is that we have to wait two years for the result of all this work to be published, but I'm sure that we'll be kept up to date and keeping the world up to date. I want to thank you again for joining us. It's Marina Otero, the recipient of the 2022 Wheelwright Prize, Future Storage Architectures to Host the Metaverse. 